Welcome to the Good Reading Podcast, proudly sponsored by Book People Gift Cards. A Book People gift card is the perfect gift for readers of all ages. Simply order your gift card online at bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au. Redeem at any one of over 500 bookshops across Australia. Visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au. Dr. Michael Mosley is a science presenter, journalist and executive producer. After training to be a doctor at the Royal Free Hospital in London, he spent 30 years at the BBC making science documentaries. He's the author of several best-selling books, including The Fast Diet, The Eight-Week Blood Sugar Diet, The Clever Guts Diet, and The Fast 800. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Michael Mosley about his new book, The Fast 800 Keto, Eat Well, Burn Fat, Manage Your Weight Long-Term. Dr. Michael Mosley, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Lovely to be with you. Over the last 50 years or so, the fad diet market has seen countless guides to weight loss come and go to the point that the very word diet has become a bit of a dirty word. Is that label justified? And are you on a mission to change that? Yeah, I mean, the uh, original meaning of the word diet was simply uh, what you eat. And there are things like the Mediterranean diet, for example, which is a description of a way of eating and a lifestyle, uh, which is widely embraced as being one of the healthiest on the planet. But unfortunately, along with, um, you know, good scientifically based studies and diets, there's also some like 50,000 other diets out there, many of which are utterly terrible and many of which have been sort of uh, based on some celebrity writing something on the back of a packet of cornflakes. So you have to distinguish between the good ones and the bad ones. And unfortunately, uh, yeah, um, they tend to be tarnished by uh, the label of all being sort of terrible. Whereas the reality is there is a lot of good science that has um, occurred in the world of um, dietary science over the last 10 years or so. And we have a much clearer idea now about what constitutes a a good diet for daily living, but also the sort of um, diet you might want to embark on should you want to lose weight or reverse your type 2 diabetes or lower your blood pressure or things like that. So um, one of the other mistakes people make is they think there is some sort of universal diet. The reality is that um, you need different sort of diets depending on what you're trying to do. And um, also, um, we are all different. So um, there's a lot of variability in how people respond to different foods. Almost all of your books use the word fast in their titles as an approach to losing weight. That somehow seems contrary to what we've been told in the past. So what's changed and why do you advocate for fast weight loss? Uh, sure. So um, originally I wrote a book called The Fast Diet, which actually was a play on words because uh, it was talking about intermittent fasting rather than necessarily uh, rapid weight loss. And that was because back in 2012, which is, wow, 10 years ago now, um, I was told I had type 2 diabetes and that I need to go on medication. This was an irreversible condition. And I wasn't keen to accept that diagnosis because my dad had uh, developed diabetes about the same age that I was then, which was 55 he followed his doctor's advice and had ended up dying at the age of 74 from complications of diabetes. So I was fortunate because I was able to persuade the BBC to let me make a documentary um, called Eat Fast, Live Longer. And uh, that led to me uh, discovering the joys of intermittent fasting, cutting on calories a few days a week, uh, inventing a new diet called the 5 2 diet, uh, losing about nine kilos, reversing my blood sugar and uh, my type 2 diabetes. Uh, blood sugars went back normal. Uh, everything has stayed there since, and that was 10 years ago. And then I sort of started um, looking at more research, wondering why doing this diet had led 
to uh, my being able to uh, put my diabetes into remission to reverse it. And that led me to research done by uh, Professor Roy Taylor in Newcastle University. And that led to my writing a book called The Fast 800, uh, which was and is a rapid weight loss diet based largely on his research, but also new studies um, showing the benefits of rapid weight loss. Because what he and his colleagues did is they did a series of very big trials um, demonstrating that certainly for type 2 diabetes, uh, rapid weight loss is more effective in the short, the medium and the long term uh, for losing weight and keeping it off. And at the same time, Professor Susan Jebb at Oxford University did a similar trial and researchers in Australia did other trials. And what they did is they randomly allocated people to either doing a rapid weight loss diet, 800 calories, or slow and steady. And what they found universally was that the people who did the rapid weight loss um, were able to lose more weight and keep it off one year, two years, three years. Um, and uh, since then, I've looked at a lot of um, studies done uh, in other parts of the world. And it's a consistent story that if you do it properly, rapid weight loss is much more effective in the short, the medium and the long term, despite uh, us being told endlessly that you need to go slow and steady. I mean, having said that, I'd also say it's not suitable for everyone. And I do have a website called thefast800.com where you can find out, you know, whether you're suitable uh, to do it or not. But it, this has been the subject of numerous, very large randomized controlled trials. And um, so I feel confident in advocating it. And indeed, in Australia, uh, similar trials are underway at the moment, and I would uh, expect them to come up with very similar results. Um, and so this is a genuine revolution, if you like, in our thinking, but it is based on very solid science. Um, and when you talk to people um, who have worked in weight loss and kind of looked at the studies, um, I'm sure they would say yes, that certainly if you are suitable, rapid weight loss can be much more effective. It's more motivating. Uh, you're more likely to stick to it because you see the results. And particularly if you have uh, a condition like diabetes or perhaps high blood pressure or high cholesterol, it is also more effective at reversing those conditions. But it is a short term thing, obviously, and that's why I say it's like playing golf. You know, you don't have the same clubs all the way around. You start off with the driver, you move to the iron, you move to the putter. Um, so um, the same is true of this. You can start off with rapid weight loss, move to what I would describe as intermittent fasting. And then I think the ultimate goal should be uh, what I would describe as a Mediterranean style diet, which is one which is rich in olive oil, nuts, oily fish, uh, plenty of legumes, vegetables, basically a really healthy, tasty diet. Uh, and uh, that is the sort of end goal of all the books I write, because I do genuinely believe that if you do that and throw in some fermented foods, then you really do have uh, one of the healthiest, most sustainable and tasty diets on the planet. The fast 800 keto hinges on this state known as ketosis, keto. What is it and how does it work? Sure. So the keto diet is um, based actually on research, which is now over 100 years old. It was originally developed in 1921 as a way of treating children with epilepsy. And that is because they had known for at least a couple of thousand years uh, that one way to treat epilepsy is to uh, is to starve people. And that obviously is not a sustainable thing. Uh, but what these researchers realized is you could mimic uh, some of the benefits or some of the actions of starvation by putting people on a very uh, low carbohydrate diet because your body you're a bit like a hybrid car you run on a combination of fat and sugar 
And normally your body will predominantly run on sugar because that's a very convenient source of fuel. It's glucose. And you have about uh, four teaspoons of sugar running around your blood. And then you have about another half kilo stored away in your muscle and liver. But when you deplete those, then your body starts to turn to your fat stores because your fat is like money in the bank. Your body doesn't really want to use it unless it has to. And it does, it utilizes uh, the fat by turning it into something called ketone bodies. And when you burn those, you are in a state of ketosis. You can detect it on the breath, but also with urine sticks. And when you go into a state of ketosis, uh, then you become basically a fat burning machine. But at the same time, there appear to be benefits for the brain and um, other organs. And But to get there, you basically have to severely reduce the amount of carbohydrates you're consuming so that your body is relying almost entirely on fat for its um, fuel source and some protein as well. Is that what you mean by the phrase flipping the metabolic switch? Absolutely, because normally, as I said, you're running predominantly on sugar, uh, but your body is designed to flip the metabolic switch to go into fat burning. When I say designed, I mean evolved. All Pretty well all mammals evolved to do this because we were used to a period of feast and famine, so there would be periods of time when we had plenty of food to eat and other periods when we didn't. And that's when you have to rely on your fat stores. Obviously, in the modern world, uh, we rarely go more than a couple of hours without eating. And we also increasingly eat carb-heavy, sugar-heavy foods. And those keep your blood sugars um, well stocked up. And one of the consequences of this has been the rise and rise of type 2 diabetes and other uh, diseases. So what I am suggesting is um, a lower calorie, lower carb diet to begin with, which will rapidly put you into a state of ketosis. So you'll start to burn ketones, burn fat. Uh, but you only maintain that for a short period of time. Uh, and then you go into intermittent fasting and then, as I said, moving towards a Mediterranean diet. Because I do think there is a lot of new science showing the benefits of keto, in particular suppressing hunger, because we know that when you're in ketosis, uh, that suppresses the release of a hunger hormone called ghrelin. Um, so you don't get as hungry. People are amazed when they do the fast 800. They basically say, I'm not hungry. I'm shedding all this weight, but I'm not hungry. And the other thing is it um, preserves muscle. What we don't know is what the long-term effects of a keto diet are. So I'm not suggesting you do it long-term. I'm suggesting you do it for up to 12 weeks um, and then you transition. Because I am convinced uh, that a Mediterranean diet uh, is a healthier one. Uh, and that one contains, you know, good carbs, uh, plenty of vegetables and things like that. But even on the Fast 800 Keto, you can eat plenty of green veg. And indeed, um, I thoroughly recommend you do that for fiber. Uh, but um, these are non-starchy vegetables, which are relatively low in carbs. So the, the keto diet has kind of been out there for a while now. Um, it's had quite a bad rap because people go, ooh, too much fat. But the advantage of the Fast 800 Keto is you're not eating very much fat because you're also calorie restricting. And it's been the subject again of a number of big clinical trials, which have shown that it is much, much more effective than the standard advice of slow and steady, both in the short, the medium and the long term. A few decades ago, we switched from butter to margarine. Was that justified? It seems like the tables have turned now. Absolutely. I think we're moving back towards more natural foods. I mean, margarine is a wholly un 
natural food, if you've ever seen it being manufactured, it falls into a category of what I would describe as ultra-processed foods. One of the things I write about in the book as well is what is kind of driving obesity has largely been the fact that we have moved away from eating kind of food we cook ourselves to food we buy in supermarkets in bright packages with lots of ingredients down the side and also eating a lot of junk food in addition to that. And these foods, uh, which are almost wholly and created by big companies, highly profitable, full of fat and sugar and salt. Um, they're really very bad for us. But in addition, uh, they drive hunger. Um, so you, you have this desire to eat more and more of them. They have been manufactured. It's just like the cigarette industry. You know, the reason that people became addicted to smoking was because cigarettes, you know, once you start on them, you want more and more of them. Um, and the same is true of ultra-processed food. So in Australia, for example, uh, nearly half your diet is now comprised of ultra-processed foods. In the UK, it's even higher. And amongst kids, it's even higher than that. That's on top of all the sort of sugary drinks. Now, we're sort of consuming less sugary drinks, but that doesn't mean that our diet isn't in any way healthier. It's probably less healthy. So that's kind of one of the things I write about in the book, along with the fact that many of these ultra-processed foods are low in protein. And there's quite a lot of research now showing that um, protein is one of the major drivers of appetite. And this is based on some really, really fascinating uh, work done in Australia. We'll talk about protein in a moment, but I want to talk about this relationship between weight and waistline. What is that relationship exactly? And which one should we be most concerned about as individuals? Sure. So weight and waist kind of go together, but not necessarily. Um, you're probably familiar with your body mass index, your BMI. Uh, now, that is just it's slightly unreliable because you can be a you know a muscly athlete and have quite a high bmi so from that extent measuring your waist is perhaps a more reliable way of doing it because your waist is basically a measure of something called visceral fat that's basically the amount of fat you have around your waist and this fat also infiltrates your organs like your liver and your pancreas um, and uh, we know that having a large waist is associated with an increased risk of heart disease cancer, type 2 diabetes. And um, being a little bit chubby around the arms and the legs and the bottom is actually pretty harmless. It's the, it's the fat around the waist which seems to be critical. And men in particular are spectacularly bad at uh, measuring their waist. They go by their trouser size. But actually, you should be measuring around your belly button. And I've been out in the street and measured blokes. And uh, certainly in the UK, they typically underestimate their waist size by about 10 centimeters. Um, so this is massive. And women, particularly when they become postmenopausal, the fat shifts, the distribution shifts from the bottom to the waist, and they become more like men, if you like, and certainly their risk factor for things like diabetes and heart disease also go up. So one of my rules of thumb is there are, there are certain numbers you are given around the waist size, and I kind of write about them in the book. But broadly speaking, uh, if you can maintain your waist around ideally less than half your height. That seems to be a good measure. So um, if you're, you know, I'm 1.8 meters high, I try to keep my waist less than 90 centimeters. Um, another way of doing it is to get a piece of string. You measure it up to your height, you fold it in half. Does it go around your waist? Um, if it uh, is very tight, and uh, one of the ways I keep myself on track because uh, you know i know given half chance um i will become i will put the weight back on again i i do find it challenging i wear a tight belt so that when it starts to um i can feel the pressure uh then i start to do something about it i also 
weigh myself fairly regularly, but I do find the belt is a more constant reminder. So this is a very long way of um, saying yes. I think probably waste is the critical measure um, of um, what I would describe as your metabolic health. Um, and that would encompass things like blood pressure, cholesterol, um, and um, high blood sugars. And those seem to be the, the most critical things, if you like, for your um, current and future health. Part of this book seems to be about striking a balance between three key elements, carbs, fats, and protein. Where is the balance between these three elements? On what side should we err when we're trying to balance those three elements? Sure. So it kind of depends um, at which stage of the diet you're doing. So in the initial stage of the fast 800 keto, I suggest you go very low carb. And that means less than 50 grams of carbs a day. Uh, to give you some context, a donut has about 50 grams of carbs. So you're going to have to cut out uh, bread, uh, probably potatoes, and have minimal amounts of things like brown rice and quinoa, though you can have plenty of sort of oily fish, vegetables, some legumes and things like that. All the recipes are based on that premise. I actually call it the 50-50 rule, because initially I want you to be eating less than 50 grams of carbs, uh, but more than 50 grams of protein. So protein is critical and we can go into that. Uh, but um, in the long term, I think probably the ideal ratio uh, is 40-40-20. This is based on a huge study, a huge randomized trial done called the PREDIMED study, done by the Spanish government some years ago, the biggest and probably best randomized trial of a diet ever done anywhere at any time. Um, and this involved something like um, 5,000 people who were randomly allocated to either a low-fat diet or a Mediterranean diet. And they were given very detailed instructions. They were followed for three or four years. The trial was stopped early because it was clear those on the Mediterranean diet were doing so much better than those on the low-fat diet. We'd all been told low-fat is good for you, but it, you know, this one put a huge nail in that particular coffin because the people who were on the Mediterranean diet, which was quite a high-fat diet, uh, they had half the rates of heart disease and uh, they also had half the rates of type 2 diabetes. And the women who were on it, particularly those consuming uh, extra virgin olive oil, had a reduction in risk of breast cancer of around, again, around a half. So these were big numbers and the trial had to be stopped because it was clearly the benefit was with the Mediterranean diet. And if you look at that diet, and I've looked at it with huge detail, that study, uh, it was essentially at the end, they were on 40% fat, 40% uh, carbs, 20% uh, protein. And the fat was basically olive oil, oily fish, oily nuts, you know, healthy fats. The carbs were, again, sort of vegetables, legumes, um, some rice, bit of bread. Uh, and you've also got full fat yogurt. And the protein was, again, mainly in the form of things like oily fish rather than lots of red meat. So, as I said, I think that's quite a good ratio, although it's very different to the one you sometimes told. We're told, you know, you should have less than 30% of your diet as fat. But actually, as I said, I think it depends on the type of fat. It's very, very clear that not all fats are equal and that bacon is not the same as salmon. And, that, uh, you know, and uh, consuming margarine is not the same as consuming olive oil. There have been so many studies in recent years where they've actually drilled down into the specifics of the types of fat the types of fatty acid they can analyze these things at exquisite detail now and we know that things like olive oil are really good for the heart oily nuts are really good for you oily fish really good for you uh the same cannot be said sadly for bacon although um we still i certainly still bacon but just rather less frequently than i used to well it just tastes so good doesn't it <laughs> it does yes. is it possible to eat 
too much protein. Uh, I, I know that when people are bodybuilding, that one of the things they take is protein powder. Is that a danger? Is there a, a real danger in eating too much protein? Well, broadly speaking, uh, the Australian and the UK government guidelines uh, suggest somewhere in the region of um, 60 to 70 grams of protein a day for men and something slightly less than that for women, maybe 50. Um, I think that's probably too low based on modern, you know, science and the recommended levels when you talk to people who work in the field of bone density and also people who are interested in weight and muscle and things like that they say that broadly you should be aiming for about a gram of protein per kilogram of body weight so i weigh um, 80 kilos so i probably need about between 80 and 100 grams of protein a day and that's probably about 20% of my diet. And that's kind of a reasonable figure. 15 to 20% seems to be pretty well ideal. You can go higher than that, particularly if you are bodybuilding. Uh, but um, when you go beyond, say, 30%, uh, it's not great. And the reason is, this is based largely on animal studies. Um, but humans have kind of two pathways we go down. Uh, the, there is the repair and maintenance pathway. Um, and there is the sort of reproduction and go-go pathways. You can't do both. You, it's like, you know, you're driving a car. You can't roar around the countryside all the time and have it being busy repaired in the garage at the same time. You can do one or the other. You can't do both. And with protein, protein seems to be a major driver of the go-go pathway. So the danger, and certainly in animals, is those on a high-protein diet, and by that I mean, you know, over 30% of their diet is protein, they seem to die earlier. That's what the research shows. If you're a bodybuilder, if you're doing huge amounts of exercise, uh, it's obviously you need more protein because you need it to maintain your muscle mass. And as you get older, you need more. But most most of us probably need no more than, say, 20 percent of our diet, um, certainly in the long run, although in the short run, it can be beneficial for curbing hunger. Um, so, uh, again, in the fast 800 keto, um, the initial stages, um, I'm asking you to consume around 50 to 60 grams of protein a day. Um, and that constitutes about 25% of the total calorie. And then you kind of up it as you go through the stages. But again, another thing we know is that as you get older, you need more protein in your diet after the age of 60 because your body is less able to uh, absorb it and use it. And the other thing we know about protein is it's satiating. Um, in other words, you don't get hungry if you eat a high protein breakfast. And also your body burns through more calories simply um, processing, digesting, uh, the protein. So although it may say on the side of the packet, you know, it's 100 calories, uh, actually, as far as your body's concerned, it's probably more like 80 calories. Um, so these are all reasons uh, why protein uh, is an important part. And one of the things I am concerned about with people who have moved to a vegan or a vegetarian lifestyle is they do need to maintain their protein. And I write about it because the fast 800 keto is suitable for vegetarians. We do have vegetarian recipes, uh, but um, it is tougher if you're a vegan. And I've seen quite a few vegans uh, who whose diet is not great because they're eating junk food, junk vegan food, and just because it's vegan doesn't mean it's healthy, uh, and whose protein, uh, you know, the amount of protein they're consuming is way too low. And that's bad because for multiple reasons. Um, so, yeah, I'm actually more concerned about people eating too little protein than too much. You actually stole my next question, Michael, but uh, which <laughs> is, I didn't even realise it was possible to be a, a junk food vegan. 
So. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Some people say, uh, I was talking to a friend of mine, uh, Professor Giles Yeo, who teaches uh, genetics at Cambridge, and he, he describes uh, it as sort of uh, junk food with good PR. There is a lot of stuff out there. We In the UK, people are very fond of vegan sausage rolls, but to be honest, they are no healthier for you uh, than ordinary sausage rolls. So conceivably, they might be better for the planet and um, also for animal welfare. But you do, if you are a vegan or vegetarian, you do need to make sure that you're eating good quality protein, enough of it, along with all the other uh, micronutrients that you may be missing in your diet, like B12 and calcium and things like that. So it's not easy. Good food is... Well, for me at least, and I think for many others, one of the joys of life. Have we somehow lost sight of that? I hope not. And I mean, one of the messages very much in you know my book and my previous books, Fast Day and Keto, is it is about celebrating and enjoying food. Um, so the recipes are created largely by my wife, uh, who is a doctor and who I've been happily married to for 35 years. And um, she loves food absolutely adores food. Um, she was brought up in a culture of eating a variety of food. She was born in Singapore. She has a lot of um, interest. Her mother taught her all about food. And so she wants to create menus, recipes, which are tasty, filling, healthy, and you know just good to eat. So um, I think if you don't do that, then you're never going to stick to the diet because uh, you know it just gets boring. You need stuff which is really enjoyable. And I would say as well, if anyone wants to check out some of the recipes, you can find them um, on Instagram under Dr. Claire Bailey, spelled B-A-I-L-E-Y. And she, uh, you know, does a lot of recipes there, uh, tries them out, tests them, people kind of comment on them. But she likes simplicity as well. Um, she doesn't want recipes which are complicated or expensive. And that's one of the things people say, oh, if you want to eat well, you have to um, spend lots of money. It's just not true. Interestingly, there was um, some research done in Melbourne by the Food and Mood Centre, and they showed firstly that switching to a med-style diet um, was very good for your brain. Uh, people who were profoundly depressed on medication, but simply by switching their diet from a standard Australian diet to a med diet, um, around a third of them were able to come off medication. But they also showed that it was actually cheaper, uh, that eating this way can be cheaper because junk food, although it looks really cheap, you just encourage to eat more of it and all the add-ons and things like that. So certainly I found, um, and I've looked at my own budget, uh, that uh, when I'm eating a med-style diet, it's um, actually, you know, very affordable. And when I'm doing the fast and keto, it's actually cheaper because you're eating less. Diets suggest or imply that we have to give up things. How do yep. you respond to that? Well, firstly, um, I would say, as I said at the beginning, that diet simply means a way of life originally. So the Mediterranean diet, yeah, you have to give up um, eating too much junk food. Uh, and that is kind of life, if you like. But it doesn't mean you have to give up tasty stuff. It just means you have to eat different stuff. So uh, in the initial stages of this diet, you are going to have to cut out or reduce the carbs. But there are plenty of other tasty foods you can add in and then you start to add these things back in you do have to give up some things but uh, the things you're going to have to give up are largely the ultra processed foods uh, and um, discover the joy of eating instead i noticed that you uh, advised that uh, potato is not considered a vegetable <laughs> yes <laughs> why is uh, that Hey, just that's how they classify it, certainly in the UK. In the US, they call uh, potatoes a vegetable. I don't know about Australia, but people think, of, but they're not. I mean, uh, they're mainly starch. Uh, 
I have no idea why we were encouraged to peel potatoes because almost all the goodness is in the uh, you know the skin. So I still eat potatoes. I had some last night. Uh, I just scrub them and cut them, and I don't waste my time peeling them. Um, but I just didn't have as many as I would have had um, back in the day. And the other thing I'd say is that Australian adults, about a third have what I'd describe as metabolic disease. And that means a combination or a mixture of a large waste, high blood sugars, uh, high blood pressure. And you don't know it because you haven't been tested. So again, in Australia, roughly half of people over the age of 40 probably have high blood pressure and they don't know it. And about a third have pre-diabetes, which means their blood sugars are in the unhealthy range, but not yet type 2 diabetic. So um, I would absolutely recommend uh, you go and get yourself tested, particularly if you're over 40, over 50, any family history, um, or just simply get out that tape measure or get out that piece of string. Piece of string. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, these are really simple tests you can do at home. You don't have to go to the doctor to get them done. You can buy blood pressure monitors easily online at Chemist. You can buy uh, blood sugar monitors easily. And um, they give you a really good uh, you know, indicator of where you are metabolically. And if you're not in great shape, then do something about it now because the longer you don't act, the more risk you are um, of developing complications. One of the things that impressed me about this book was uh, how honest you are about your own foibles and failings when it comes to food and exercise. And as a final question to you, um, would I be right in suggesting that honesty about one's own eating habits and lifestyle is the real key to success in the fast 800 keto? Absolutely. Um, so I'm completely unlike my wife. My wife can stay slim effortlessly. Uh, she just likes healthy food and um, she doesn't uh, nibble between courses. I love sugary foods. I love chocolate. And given half a chance, I would eat my way to a packet of biscuits. So um, I have lots of tips in the book about how to avoid these things because I know exactly what I'm like. And, uh, and Claire knows exactly what I'm like. So I think one of the key things is preparation. You need to kind of read the thing through, work out what you want to do, but also discuss it with your friends and family and be totally honest about what you're trying to do and why you want to do it. And also, you know, when you've bought that sneaky packet of biscuits, whatever it is, be honest with yourself, but ideally tell your spouse. And um, Claire is quite capable of taking my packet of biscuits, grinding them up and throwing them away <laughs> before I nibble them. So uh, you need a supportive um, partner and ideally one uh, who isn't at the same time struggling to. But I did, you know, again, you can do it with them. Uh, the best and most successful uh People I know have generally been couples who've decided to do this together uh, because you need support. And or it could be friends or uh, on, on the website, fast800.com, we have a big supportive community you can join, uh, which will um, lead you through. And there's also expert advice there. So some people need a little bit more than um, a book, uh, but it's all about getting in your support network um, because, you know, losing weight is difficult, keep it off is difficult. Uh, and um, yeah, it, it's not a challenge to be taken lightly, but it can be done. Michael Mosley, thank you for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you. I've been talking with Dr. Michael Mosley about his new book, The Fast 800 Keto, Eat Well, Burn Fat and Manage Your Weight Long-Term. It's published by Hachette and is available at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name is Greg Dobbs and thanks for listening. This Good Reading Podcast was brought to you by Book People Gift Cards. Share the joy of reading with a Book People Gift Card. To find out more, visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au.